Welcome to the Philacrosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. How's it going, everybody? I hope you've been enjoying these lacrosse conversations as much as I have. For more content like this, check out these resources. A Lacrosse Weekend, my weekly blog comes out on Saturdays. You can subscribe at jm3blog.com. The JM3 Sports YouTube channel has been upgraded with a ton of great content. Please subscribe and check it out. I think you'll like it. And then last is the Coaches Training Program, our most updated and cutting-edge content all the principles-based across stuff, plus hundreds of webinars, endless drills, and a really cool office hours component that allows coaches to come on and interact, watch film, talk lacrosse, do Q&A. I think you'll really like it. Um, I hope you all have a great 2023 and so glad it's lacrosse season. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Phil Lacrosse podcast. Very excited to welcome back John Galloway, head coach at Jacksonville. John, how you doing, man? Great to have you on. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm, uh, you know, actually just was listening to Coach Poli's podcast on my drive in. We're we're at uh, 48 hours away from our first game, so it's always getting my mind going in the season. And, and your podcast is often kind of the debut of the spring season, so I appreciate that. Awesome, man. Love it. Um, so let's chat about some of the most interesting things that you've learned. In the last couple of months, whether it was a podcast, whether it was a book, whether it was, you know, a sit down with another program, what are some of the things that you've learned recently that you're excited that you'd be willing to share with us? Yeah, I think, you know, I'll start with a book. Uh, John Orson recommended his favorite book. It's actually sitting right here, ironically, The Mission, The Men and Me, which uh, was not planned. Um, And it's a book that John Orson recommended. And it really changed the way that I looked at specifically recruiting uh, in the preseason and really, you know, centering my thoughts around making sure that everything we do as a staff is focused on the, the end result, you know, and that was a, a big uh, lesson learned from last season. I think so, so much was happening in the spring and there were so many individuals that were having success, but uh, we were, we were too often catering it to a certain part of the year where we had to cater towards the mission. And then we had to define what the mission was. So uh, we kind of changed our outlook to say, okay, this, these are our goals. These are the things we want to achieve. We're not going to be able to win a conference though in January. So uh, if this is our mission, how are the decisions that we're making today affect what that mission is going to be at the end of the May? So whether that be um, a little bit of less intensive practices in the preseason or some more difficult conversations with personnel and the roster, I think that has given us kind of a, a, a do arrow north to make some tough decisions as a program. So what are some examples? I mean, you kind of referenced them vaguely, but did you have, do you have some specific big picture things that you're going to try to do to um, focus more on the mission than, um, than on the now or, or yeah. how, why the mission to the now? Yeah. I think that one of the first things we did, you know, I am very, uh, I'm always sensitive to the individuals in our locker room, especially because we have a big roster and every, you know, we, we have simple saying, right, we only need everyone, but there's a lot of guys that their roles are uh, often not defined until those first couple of weeks of the preseason. And then all of a sudden you get the, you know, the sad faith and uh, now I'm not playing. So we try to be incredibly transparent in the fall of, hey, this is where you are. And, and let's, especially to our freshmen, 
Uh, they, they have such high expectations. They've, they've just come off a season where they play in the state championship, but they're playing a lot of minutes. And, and we wanted to make sure that they understood the mission was ahead of everything else. So the book has really kind of given me a little bit more clarity on, you know, don't wait until the last minute to, to share information um, because it's always going to come as a surprise to them, even if you don't think it's a surprise. So we've been really, really, uh, trend, I guess, just transparent with the guys that might be earning roles, but not quite there yet. So in January, when we came in, everybody knew and accepted their role. And I think we've hit the ground running because of that. Nice. And you talked to, you referenced a little bit uh, about how to maybe uh, keep yourself fresh, which before we press record on this podcast, we were talking about my friend, Tony Holler and feed the cats um, and how he had a monumental impact on me and my coaching because I would just burn people out, even when I was really careful not to physically, you know, overdo it. But I almost mentally burn people out by not giving enough days off and by just pushing and pushing and pushing, which is what we do as coaches. We're grinders. It's how we're built. It's how we're wired. And to let go on that is really, really hard. Um, and it sounds like, you know, in your own way, your mission is going to require freshness at the end of the year. How are you going about that both physically and, and mentally? Yeah, something we started last year, and it actually started with our, our secondary players who, you know, when you take a step back and you think about how you practice, usually Friday is a lighter practice. So that means guys that aren't playing for you on game day may have Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, three, you know, almost half of the week off. So it started to think about those guys. How do we develop those guys? How do we make sure that the strength and conditioning program is a little bit different for those guys who do maybe not see as many minutes on Saturday or on Sunday don't need a rest and recovery day? So it started there. And then you know, I have a, a Hal Luther, who was our strength coach at Syracuse University, who's now the assistant strength coach with the Buffalo Bills. They played the Jaguars last year in Jacksonville, and I had a chance to meet with him. And we talked about I asked him, I said, you know, every time I look at the injury report, Stefan Diggs is having a day off or, you know, um, Josh Allen's constantly in a red jersey or, you know, there's, uh, you know, half of your offense alignment doesn't practice on Wednesdays. How do you implement the game plan? And they said, you know, uh, so much of what we do as professionals is in the film room and the X's and O's on their iPads. When we get out there, we just have to have them be fresh. And I, I, I stopped and realized Jacob Griner, who's one of our starting attackmen, he took like three weeks off, had a slight injury. He came back and he looked like he was shot out of a cannon. And we realized these guys, yeah, they're six or sometimes rusty when you give them a couple of days off. But, but if you give them a little bit of juice, if you allow them to rest their bodies and their muscles and, and mentally to have a reset, you get more out of them. So we started instituting vet rest days and that, you know, that means you have to tell Max Waldbaum, Hey, you can't practice. And you got to like hold that guy off the field, but it gave us a little bit more at the end of the week. And even him last year, cause he tried to practice so hard. He faded a little bit in the tournament and had a back spasms. And that's cause he practices so hard. So we had to learn even from our higher end athletes that you just can't do it six, seven days a week, four or five months a year and expect to be playing at your best in May. So true. In, in the hardest working guys, yep, um, do extra and they grind more and more and more. I, I can't tell you how much I see kids um, doing too much. You know, you got Fogos that will do face-offs for like an hour, an hour and a half a day. Like, okay, what's the most, but by the time you've got some good technique, if you're a Fogo, is there anything more important than being your quickest? Yeah. No, nothing. It's beating them, it, it, you know, you ask, ask like Andy Towers, the godfather of face-offs who, who, uh, you know, will basically tell you at the, at the level he's coaching at it with the chaos, it, it's, it's whoever wins the whistle wins. 
Mm -hmm. you got to go or you go, you just, that's who wins. Cause everyone's technique is good. And, and you can't make up technique. Can't make up for a guy that's beating you when you both have great technique. And so therefore, what are you practicing when you're going that hard? How about the kids that shoot so many balls that they end up with stress fractures in their back because they think mm -hmm. shooting 90 minutes a day. No, it's a rite of passage to work hard in some ways. It's like, it makes you feel good to grind it out. Mm -hmm. But honestly, the diminishing returns factor is insane with things like shooting or wall ball or just practicing your face offs. You'd be way better off playing some hoops. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like doing yeah. something different that would actually make you a better athlete um, or just resting. Uh, yeah. The power of rest is training. Sleep is training. Recovery mm -hmm. is training. Yep. Yeah. And it's, 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 just as much physical as it is mental. I think it's, again, your, your high performers, they want to be here. They want to be in the facility all the time. I have to tell some guys to leave because it's just, even for me, like when you have that, you know, Tuesdays that are our off day. So we come in a little bit later. We're only here for four or five days, four or five hours in the day on Wednesdays. I'm a better coach because of that. And I think that that translates to our guys as well. So true. Um, one of the things you can do is watch film. That is uh, not particularly physically taxing. Uh, if, as you know, um, as a coach, when you're light on sleep and you're preparing and you got to watch more and more and more film, it can be a little bit mentally taxing to watch that much film. But for the athletes, um, how do you leverage film and how important is watching film to your players um, with practice film and game film? Yeah. Again, we've, you know, I was, I used to be a guy, I, I break down the film, you know, and I, I have a certain code window that I believe in just based on themes of the team and the culture, coach Cornelli and coach Brzezinski do an amazing job of presenting it to our guys. Um, the truth is some guys love it. You know, our, our 4.0 guys, they, they need to see it, right. They want to be in here. They come in for extra hours. Some guys don't, some guys have a knack. Some guys understand the game a different way. So you have to be able to illustrate it to different types of people. Uh, we do meet a, a good amount as a team, but no session over 20 minutes. Uh, that's, that's been our new rule this year. Uh, we actually had our associate athletic director come in and said, Hey, listen, here's, here's this new generation and anything past eight minutes, you, it's, it's a waste of time. In fact, it's really like 30 seconds snackable items that you're going to be able to digest. So being able to be a little bit prolific on those small windows, uh, but then give them access. So we actually uh, bought another service on top of huddles for code of just play this year where, you know, it's the diagram and the video and it's on their phone and it takes 15 seconds to watch it. And it's just another tool for, yeah. our, you know, higher achieving students that, that have this and want to see it in between classes. And, and it's just a refresher before practice. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I, I, I don't disagree. I, I kind of stopped doing group film sessions because you look around and people are like falling asleep. They're not really paying attention. And then you're like, dude, you got to pay attention. And it's like, stop talking. You know, it just like, it creates like, yeah. but I mean, you know, they've been in school all day. Mm -hmm. However, what I started doing was we created a private Twitter and I would just tweet a clip. Um, like you said, six seconds, 10 seconds, 12 seconds with a little caption. You yep. split, sp spice it up with some humor. You put some more yep. highlights in there. I mean, everyone loves watching themselves do a highlight. No um, doubt. You know, you can throw in other highlights from other games, college games, you know, where it was high school lacrosse, but, but, you know, and, and then actually I'd be like, Hey, did you, did you guys see that? They, they all see it because they're on their phones all day long. It's like, Hey, did yep. you see that clip? They're like, yeah. All right. So this is what we're working on now. Cause I do think yep. that whether you're that four oh student or not understanding via film, as opposed to via the explanation when they're on the field is, is critical 
and is the value of film. So the rinse and repeat nature of practice film. Hey, we're running this. We This yeah. is what we meant when we said, you know, you're too far off your guy as you're looking to slide here. Do you see what we're talking about? And they'll be like, oh yeah, I see it. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. It's, it has to be interactive. I've learned that, you know, I, cause it, it just makes us feel good as coaches that you're touching on everything. And if you sit down even and watch, you know, coach Cornelli or coach Brzezinski present, it's hard to stay engaged for that long period of time. If it's not you on the screen specifically too. So I would love to have a camera on our guys. As soon as we switch to positives, which we've 70% of our film sessions now are the positives, their body language perks up because they want to see success. So it's, it's one or two teaches and then we have to show them guys doing it right. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, so let's, uh, let's switch gears to, um, the word creativity. What does it mean to you? Um, how do you, do you believe in, 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 in trying to enhance creativity and, and how do you do that as a coach? How do you do that to allow your players to, to, and, and why would we do creativity when we could just do it the way that, you know, we could just do it this way. What's the advantage yeah. of creativity, if at all? Yeah. You know, for us, creativity is decision-making. So, you know, we break our practice into quarters and quarter one is fundamentals. And then quarter two is decision-making drills. And that's where we, we allow the game to be played without the whistle to be blown. So whether that be an uneven drill or a two-man game drill or, um, you know, trying to dissect and, and, and identify what's happening within a half field scenario, that's where we get to put our whistles away and allow guys to learn how to play the game. And um, I think creativity is contagious as well. That's one thing I've, I've seen over my time as a player and a coach. And I think Albany changed when Lyle Thompson came. You know, if you, if you just th- have a catch with Lyle Thompson, you start to throw the ball differently. Uh, we have a young man, Marshall McGuire, who's a transfer from Syracuse, who's a West Coast kid, he's played a little box, and he just throws differently because he's been around those types of guys. Uh, Dylan Watson's having that impact on us. Jackson and is having that impact. And I just think, you know, creativity is a contagious. And when you see a guy try something, all of a sudden other guys try to do it as well. So quarter two for us is all about giving those guys a chance to, to read, identify, and make decisions, which in our sport to me is creative creativity. Yeah. And I think sometimes we get so stuck on fundamentals that we like hold guys back from creativity because, because in the end it's like, well, I just want you to do it this way. Cause we know that this way can work and it's like this high percentage. But then again, if you always do it this way, then it's predictable. And if it's predictable, mm-hmm. then the defense is going to be able to guard it better, obviously, no matter what it is. Um, and so therefore creativity really has to do with trying to find a solution to a situation that is a little different so that the defense doesn't guard it quite as well, which kind of leads Absolutely. me into another word that I want to ask you about deception. Mm-hmm. Deception to me is just, it's a word that I just talk about a lot with the athletes and coaches and think about a lot. And the more I watch film, the more I see that just about every play against a good defense that is successful was rooted in something that was deceptive or different. And that's why they got a step. That's why the play worked. And yep. whenever a defense had a great stand, usually there was a lack of it. What are your thoughts on that word? It's funny, you know, Coach Cornelli, our offensive coordinator, has has really changed my way of looking at this because, you know, I always, for as a defensive coach, always said, you know, if you just motion this way, it's really difficult to defend. If you just throw it through X and attack us here, it's really difficult to defend. And um, we became robotic and Coach Cornelli really changed the way that we played. And what we came up with this year, again, we created our goals. This was our mission. 
how do we get there? How are we going to beat the teams we want to beat? Well, we, we, we don't have the athletes maybe to, to win every one of those games. So we call it diversion, diversion lacrosse, diversion on ball, diversion off the ball and diversion away from the ball. So, you know, obviously that with the ball, the picker or away from the ball and everything that we do is in a, a essentially a menu of diversion lacrosse. So how do you exchange? Yeah, Cause you know, we used to exchange, we call it a Venmo, right? A quick exchange, but we just ran back and forth. Didn't even look at the ball. Weren't looking at our man. Uh, when we came and set a pick, you know, uh, I would listen to um, Alex Rama's call with you the other day and we yeah. have, we have a different call for it, but the AAA rating always yeah. arrive alone. Like that is, that's a drill coach Grinelli was doing with our guys the other day with an injured player and you had to lose him before setting a pick. So the diversion is, and sometimes the diversion is, is minimal, right? If it's a team's fast sliding and you are on the interior, instead of moving because you know, they're sliding, your job is to, with a talking head, create some, some commotion that's going to open up your teammates. So, um, you know, we diversion for us is like the answer that. on offense. Yeah. The diversion. And like you said, sometimes the diversion is so subtle, but when you watch, like watch Lyle Thompson, mm-hmm. literally everything he's doing is a diversion. Correct. There's nothing he's doing that he's not diverting your attention to something else with the way, with his posture, with the way he's looking, you know, with the way he jabs, uh, with the way he holds his stick, you know, as a goalie, um, you know, there's nothing probably harder than just heat that you can't catch up with. But when you add together to the diversion, it's yeah. really hard, right? I mean, you know, if you think they're going low and they're not, it's very hard for you to, not bite on the diversion. Um, yep. Talk about that a little bit, though. As as a guy who's a world class goalie, talk about deceptive shooting and how that, you know, you dealt with that as a goalie, and why it's such an advantage for shooters that can do that. Yeah, I, I think you know, with our shooters, it starts the posture, right? Like I, I I always read the shoulders and the and the posture of a of a offensive player. I think about the first time I watched Joe Walters and how squatty he was and athletic and his ability to change levels to Paul Rabel, who was able to keep his shoulders up in full speed and be able to change the ball high and low. I mean, obviously it's well documented, the six folds he scored in the national championship against me in 2008. And, you know, really his ability to move his shoulders to where the ball was, was always really difficult for me. And then I think back to, you know, Garrett Billings, who was the guy who, you know, just quick release shooting, it take away the, the ability for me to set up on you. And, um, you know, we, we use the example in the film room, the first day with the defense, you know, uh, or the offense stand here, look at me, look at the rooms, identify Charlie De Janeiro, And it was easy to point to him and then spin him in a circle. Okay. Now identify uh, Dylan Watson. And it took a second for him to figure out where Dylan Watson was. And I think we use that as an analogy to say a little movement, a little commotion, making the goalie change a stance or a position, whether that be with your hands or with ball movement makes it a heck of a lot harder to make a save. Hmm. So as a goalie, you have to be able to read a shooter's where you think they might be shooting it, but but also what their options are. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think, you know, Coach Donahue actually taught me this a long time ago. It was just kind of a science reference. He was a science teacher as well as my, my coach in college. But, you know, when you're looking at the net, you have 36 square feet. As soon as you shoot the ball overhand, you increase it to 72 square feet because you have the ability to use the turf. When you change the levels of your hands based on where you are, so if your sticks to the outside versus inside, you know, we used to have two strings uh, tied to a stick and then tied to the top pipes. And it showed you based on where the head of the stick was, how much you actually had to move as a goalie to make that save. So for us as off as 
offensive minded coaching, you know, we tried to change where the eyes at the head of the stick were. Cody Jamison and Sid Smith used to put eyes on the top of the head or their stick. And, and that's what the stick saw versus what the body saw. So a lot of stick to the inside shooting. And we have basic shooting roles that, you know, one of our proudest stats last year was we were second in the nation behind Maryland by a very very small percentage. Um, And it was us and everybody else. And I think it led back to our shooting rules. You know, we, we asked our guys to put our six back to the inside to change the level, every one out of every three shots to not shoot on the run outside of nine and a half and to try to get in between the pipes and don't let the ball go off the sidelines, make sure it goes off the end line. That just increases our percentage because it increases our angles. And as a goalie, that's how I learned it as well with those two strings tell me where the ball could actually go in. So cool. How uh, into analytics are you guys? I think we do our own version of analytics. So for us, you know, the most important stat on offense besides shooting percentage and, and goals is offensive saves. You know, the ball hits the deck a lot, whether that be a shot rebound, a drop pass, a, you know, a deflected ball. So offensive saves to us are the most important stat. We have found that from foul clears and offensive saves, it, it almost doubles in likelihood that you score on that second opportunity because the defense is fatigued. That's when they start to make mistakes. That's when they're not as organized. Um, so offensive saves for us is huge. Uh, offensive saves well. being offensive rebounds? Uh, yeah, just in general, anything off the turf. So it, whether that's a rebound off of a shot, again, a drop ball, uh, an end line protection off of a shot, what happens after that play is, is considered for us an offensive save. Got it. Interesting. So those are some of the those are some of the analytics that you go by. What about the value of a the value of the possession in 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 terms of um, you know not getting a shot at the end of a possession versus forcing a shot uh, shooting at the beginning of the possession? There's some interesting stats with laxreference.com that that show universally people score more in the middle of the possession than the beginning of the possession. But I I'm actually going to do a podcast uh, with Zach. Um, and uh, who runs laxreference.com and really dive into these things. But are you are you looking at that, um, what the value of a possession really is, which would be the offensive efficiency of your opponent? Would, would you know, if they were at 40%, then that would be worth 0.4 of a goal if they have the ball. And if you're at 40%, that would be 0.4 of a goal for you. Turning yep. it over early in transition is like 0.8. That offensive save is like, that's a 0.4. Right. So mm-hmm. that's why that has so much value. But are you looking at the value of a possession? Yeah, I'll be transparent. We don't break it down as analytically as he does. And he does an amazing job. But what we do recognize is the value of the end of possessions. And, and again, value of end of possessions, obviously being goals and, and, and stops, kills. You know, the Richmond game last year that we lost, it was the one game that we actually – uh, that, that we gave up the most amount of, of second chance opportunities at the mm-hmm. end of a shot clock. So that, that, that could just be a short time rebound or end of clock. Yeah. That Richmond game was the, the most we had all year long and obviously ended our season. Uh, offensively, one of the things that we changed last year, and again, Coach Grinelli, to his credit, we, we stopped giving the ball away. So if it was end of shot clock, we were going to get one more possession. And we have some basic rules in, in place at, at the end of the shot clock and, and under the 10 seconds, but we're not going to, dump the ball anymore uh we have a plan to ride but also to to get one last chance and um for us we found defensively those goals are just back breaking so we wanted to take those chances you know and and you know as long as the ball is on the turf as long as the ball is going north south not south north we're willing to take some chances there in the last 10 seconds as well well especially yeah if it's taking a chance on going to the rack or jamming a feed maybe or diving across, you know, the crease probably a good chance to take. I think a bad shot will kill you <laughs> because then all of a sudden yeah. it's coming right down your throat. 
Um, mm-hmm. So you're, you're, but you're, but you're shooting, you know, rules, um, concepts, philosophies probably keep you away from taking those types of bad shots that the goalie catches and, and bites you anyways. Correct. Yeah. We, we, we are, you know, I don't love rules. I get that that's a word that people don't like, but um, I just, I believe so wholeheartedly in our shooting roles. I just think it's, yeah. I mean, the proof is in the pudding. If you look at yeah. the stats, I mean, over yeah. a large sample size. No doubt. Um, you've had some pretty impactful transfers coming in. I got to bring up Max Waldbaum, Colorado kid. Um, known him since he was probably in fifth grade. Um, great kid, great athlete, amazing late bloomer. Like that kid was like actually like an early bloomer when he was like in sixth grade and then really didn't grow until he was probably like a junior in high school. And he's kind of become a beast. Talk a little bit about him and some of the other kids that you've been able to bring in and how you sort of get them to assimilate into your culture and your, in your, in your schemes. Yeah. Um, with Max, it wasn't so much assimilating as, as he sh- changed our culture. Um, he came in the first day and he nearly got in a fight with Colin Hinton, who was our number one defenseman at the time and scored a game winning goal in a, in a game to one scrimmage. And from that day on our culture changed. I've never met or coached or played with somebody as competitive as Max Waldbaum. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's unlike anything I've ever seen. And I don't know him as a high school player. Obviously we watch a little film of him at Tufts, but as a competitor, as a guy that wants to play, I've never been around a guy like him. And uh, I think he's going to have a bright future professionally as well, just because he kind of refuses to say, no, I was actually looking at our body weights today. He weighs 235 pounds. He almost wins every race, like every race he wins. And it's just, it's a credit to how hard he works. Beast. And of course, D Watt, it's a good pickup right there. My, uh, my son roomed with him um, and uh, got to know Dylan Watson really well. Great family, great kid, great player, great team guy. So it's uh, got to be fun to have him on the roster too. Yeah. And, and he speaks the world of, of you and your family and his, his, you know, his relationship with Colin at Georgetown. But um, what what's great, uh, greatest about him, obviously everybody knows his talent, what he's going to do in the indoor league. He is maybe the most humble guy on the team. Um, I mean, his ability to score the ball is is uncanny, but uh, his humility is what makes him pretty special. And, um, and, and you know, those guys are just a, a, a small example of some of the guys we've been able to bring in. Luke Milliken, who was top five in the country yeah. last year in save percentage, and, um, and Cole Daniger this year from Rucker, who's another West Coast kid that's that's given us a spark in, in terms of our culture. Brandon Galloway, I think, is a well-kept secret. So there's, you know, the transfer thing, um, it's just part of uh, part of what we do now. And, and those guys not only are, are good players, but they've brought over some of their cultural strengths and have made us a better program, made me a better coach. Yeah, amazing. You can learn a lot from from everyone you're around. Absolutely. Um, let's let's reflect back. I was thinking as I was getting ready for this podcast that you know you spent a lot of time at Providence, and now my son's there. Maybe you could tell me some things that you learned along the way. You you referenced Coach Donahue. You know, um, you've had unbelievable mentors, whether it was at Syracuse, Providence, Duke, um, and even the assistance you've been been had along the way. Um, can you talk a little bit and just sort of think about some things that you learned that you're like still doing and really, or that you've evolved into what you're still doing now um, that maybe would be an interesting topic? Yeah, I'll certainly try to be succinct, but, you know, Coach Donahue taught me everything about talking to a player, not yelling at a player. Uh, Kevin Donahue was with me every day in warmups. I never got yelled at. I had a conversation uh, that taught me as a coach that the power of, of a relationship, 
Uh, he's a guy I'll lean on for as long as I can. Uh, John Donowski taught me this doesn't have to be a job. This has to, this is a passion. You don't have to grind every day. Um, his perspective on what we do as a profession. I'm so thankful. I started with him in my coaching career because who knows where I would be. And it carried me right over to with coach Gavs at Providence and, and with Brett Holm, who's now at Brown, who Brett and I, I mean, Brett and I were texting today about game day situations, down one, up one man up. I mean, that relationship that I have with him, who's a tough guy, who kind of sees it from a more analytic lens now in the Ivy League. Um, Gab's just t- teaching me about toughness. I mean, shit, we just practice hard at Providence. And uh, he was relentless in that approach um, to now at Jacksonville uh, to, to, to our assistants. I mean, Chris Brzezinski and Tyler Grinelli, to me, are, are some of the best kept secrets in our sport. Um, Chris, Chris and his relationship building his ability for the guys just to love being in here. I mean, I, it kind of stinks for me because the D guys don't come and talk to me anymore uh, mm-hmm. because they go and talk to coach B uh, and then coach Grinelli, his, his open-mindedness of, you know, we have wisdom offensive meetings every Monday and, and the RO guys come in and say, Hey, this is what we want to do. And they, they're not always right. You know, this is not a, um, uh, this is not, uh, you know, um, this is a dictatorship for sure. It's, 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 it's gotta be, but, to give those guys a voice is so important. And that includes transfers and, and fifth years who have been here for the whole ride. So they've taught me to open my mind to, to listening to the players a little bit more and um, shoot, you're just learning all the time. And I have great mentors in Kevin Connery, Joe Amplo, Seth Tierney, but you know, to be able to, to call those guys and just ask a question, whether it's, it's off the field, on the field, you know, makes you feel more empowered as coach. How about some of the unbelievable players that you've played with? Um, yeah, you know, got to start with probably your boy Joel White. But what are some of the what are what are what are the uh, some of the things that you can think of of some of the great players you played with and what you've learned from them and that you try to uh, share or teach with your program? Yeah, yeah, it starts with Joel, um, who is my best friend, obviously, and and he's a guy that um, it's never as bad as I think it is. He was always there, whether that was I was a player and I didn't know if I was going to start to as a coach. And I think the world's coming to an end. He's always kind of the voice that I, I, I lean on. Um, the, the next guy I think of immediately is it's actually Greg Bice um, mm-hmm. with the Rochester Rattlers and just learning the, the, the meaning of integrity and uh, just doing your business the right way. Um, and then move, moving on to my career, I mean, Jordan McIntosh actually spoke to our team this week. Um, Jordan McIntosh, if you go through his accolades, he just, he's like a quietly, one of the most successful lacrosse players, at, ever, uh, whether it be, you know, indoor, outdoor, captain i mean the role he has as a leader um he talked about the monk mindset with our team you see here we have these cards monk mentality uh you know which is uh you know what mac talked to us about which is kind of just in between the years you know how he approaches i mean he's he's as old as me he's playing both leagues he's playing sixes field he's playing he's, he's in the midst of the tryout process with team canada he just had a baby girl he's the vp of sales at a startup tech company in boston and his his it's like this it just never changes his performance. Yeah. So um, people, people like that, that teach you how to be a professional. Um, yeah. You know, last, you know, last guy I would think of is, is probably John Rannigan and, and Jordan Wolf, who again, two guys just remind me to keep it light um, because yeah, I think so often we're just seeing the doom and gloom and, and those guys remind you, Hey, as players, when Petra would say this or coach Nowski would say this, we would just let it go in one ear and out the other. And, you know, reminding me to have a lot of fun with our guys as well. You know, the whole doom and gloom thing, um, is such an interesting one because as a coach, you just know when you're not playing well and you know, if you're not playing well, you're just like kind of screwed. And you know that certain mistakes towards the end of a game just puts you in like the worst position. 
And it's just so easy to just realistically, I'm like, I'm not being pessimistic. I'm just being realistic. But the thing is, yeah. is that you still have a chance. And that's the magic of games. That took me a long time to, to learn that. Um, and I, I think I kind of almost learned it from just watching Bill Belichick operate when it just things looked incredibly bad, like against Seattle. Mm-hmm. And he just hung in there. And, and so much of it is just about hanging in there. And I'm sure that's what a lot of these guys taught you when you talk about the doom and gloom thing and the Joel White. It's just like, just hang in there and give yourself a chance um, because you have a chance. Um, how much do you try to think that way as a coach and, and actually share that with your team um, while not being sort of a, you know, just the overly optimistic, unrealistic guy? Yeah. Yeah. That was never my, my, uh, my role as a, as a leader on our teams. I was, I was the Yang to Rannigan and Joel's Yang. But um, I think for me, it's, 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 it, you know, to your point with a guy like Bill Belichick or, you know, everybody looks at these football coaches, but what they do have is process. You know, they have a process. They, they understand the game, the length of game. They understand the momentum swings. And that's what we have a staff has done is, you know, win, lose or draw over the last two years, our process has been consistent because our guys believe in it and, it makes them the most healthy. We've been able to try to avoid a lot of issues. And um, because of that, we feel like the product, you know, the, the outcome is going to take care of itself. So um, for us, it's, it's more trusting that right, right now on Thursday, I'm not watching more film. Like our guys aren't absorbing any more information. I'm going to spend some time with some of our guys later. We're going to go walk to the calf because that's when we bump into the most of our guys. Like, you know, and I don't want to say haze in the barn yet. Cause that's not the case, but for us, like um, I'm going to read a little bit in my office today. I'm probably not going to watch as much film because I know that the balance of the, the the week is is it's not me working five days a week. So I think that the process has been huge for us and, and just laying that out for our staff. Yeah. All right. Well, I think everyone wants to know end of game situations. You and Brett, <laughs> what were some of the yeah. top? And I don't want you to give away. Game it's cards. funny. Don't, don't worry about that. But but um, but as far as you know, when you think about end of game situations, first of all, how often do you practice them? How do you, because I mean, the bottom line is, is that if you do not practice the ability to double, to press out, to when there's a shorty on the ball, figure out how to flush that guy off the ball and get pulls on and lock with your shorties. And, you know, and by the way, it's a lot harder these days when you don't have to keep it in the box. But, um, but what are some yeah. of the things that, that you sort of do from a preparation perspective as it relates to end of games? Yeah, it's funny because, you know, and again, Max Wallbaum, he texted me at like 10 o'clock the other night and said, hey, situations and started listing like flag down, broken stick. And I'm like, you know, this guy's, you know, getting his MBA and it's 10 o'clock at night and he's that's what he's thinking about. But um, for us, it's it's more hot spots. OK, where's a hot spot? Is it a two minute? We're up. All right, let's just talk about the situation. Where do we want the ball to go? Uh, what what are the outcomes if this happens? So, uh, you know, Brett's very analytic and it's it's more time. So he, you know, the one he sent me this morning was like 40 seconds on the clock. Um, you're down one and you have one timeout, but there's 20 seconds on the shot clock. And for me, that's hard because if there's a, a, a five to eight second fluctuation on either side, it changes the situation. So am I just handicapping our guys by providing something like that because it's not it might not exactly be that in the game so we as coaches have to be prepared to how we use timeouts how we make our decisions but as players we want to talk to them about hot spots where, where could we be successful doubling the ball who do we want to double the ball uh if we're up and we are going to turn the ball over what's the worst case scenario is it behind the net is it off of a shot is it to the end line how are we riding are we giving ourselves in 2018, we lost a game to Ohio State by a goal in overtime. And every situation that could have happened that we weren't prepared for happened. 
So now we talk about like the, the Ohio State analogy, not that moment, but just if this were to happen, what's next? How do you respond? And I think what you find when you watch lacrosse films is it's often the team that just panics. You know, if, if, if you're if you're in the moment and you know the clock, you, you can make good decisions without, you know, having practiced, you know, 40 seconds, two timeouts, et cetera. So we try to be careful with that. We really try to put our guys in situations. One thing we've done this week is instead of walking through it, we say, all right, man up, face off. And instead of telling everybody what's about to come, we'll say, hey, um, you know, turn the ball over right when we get our man down. What happens? And see how everybody reacts. And we totally screwed it up. <laughs> and, you know, that for us, though, is a learning lesson versus me telling them they know exactly what's coming. That's not often how it happens in the game. Do you look at end of game um, as a package? Of- uh, yeah, yeah. Two minute offense, two minute defense, riding, clearing, face off. You know those those packages with under two minutes. And you know, again, Brett kind of gave me the analogy of like, well, you got to look at it four minute, two minute, based on the shot clock, because how many possessions are you going to have to play defense left? And um, I also, I, I just we do so much. Like I, I was listening to a podcast you were doing the other day and it's, you know, I want to do a little bit more of that one, one versus one plus one and the one versus two. And what well, we want to do so much, but what, what, what can we accomplish? You know, like how, how much on this menu can we get to? Um, I want to make sure our guys are empowered at the end of the game, not handicapped by what the clock is not looking over the shoulder at us. So can we situationally just prepare ourselves without, you know, walking through that exact moment. So packages versus, you know, if this happens, we do this. Yeah. I always kind of looked at it as a package of like, okay, um, you know, we have our offensive package. We're down. We have an offensive package of the things that we want to be able to do. We've got, you know, which flows right into the 10 man ride package of trying to get the ball back, which flows right into the package of being able to get the ball back um, if we're on defense and how we're going to go about doing that. Um, that's mm-hmm. kind of what I meant, which is the same thing you're doing. It's just a matter of the sort of the way you look at it as like a Correct. flow, a flow, which which it will be um, in a game. Yeah, yeah, and, and we used to do like you know we used to always do at all eyes at, at with Coach Janowski at Duke, and those guys were so ingrained. But I find it hard for guys to watch sit on the sidelines and do all eyes. You know, you you just kind of have to do it and let it flow. You know, in the midst of the yeah. play. So something that we've tried to be better at. Um, you know, in terms of how we practice it, not whether or not we practice it. Mm-hmm. Um, the ability to double and the, the ability to deal with doubles is the probably one of the biggest fundamentals of end the game as far as getting mm-hmm. it back or killing the game. I always kind of looked at it as like, you know, the, the four on four double team drill or just double team drills in general, double team keep away drills, but double team drills with the ability to step out have the to see it coming to be able to have the the courage really to to step out and the courage to stay on it you know i mean mm-hmm. like you, it's hard enough to get guys step out but it's probably even harder to get the guy on ball to like chase over it when they're just going under picks all the time um yep. of course be the, the ability to deal with that i mean one of the greatest examples of this was virginia's last minute against carolina in the final four um a couple of years ago where mm-hmm. there were three different pick coverages with the final one being a double team that, that pretty much sealed the, sealed the game. They were, I know they, they were down, they were down. Virginia was up and on defense. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, I was just curious how you, how you try to prepare the guys for that specifically through teaching and, and working on doubles for both sides of the ball. Yeah. Well, the, the first thing is it's, it's hard, right. It's taxing. Yeah. So now it's, it's offensively making sure that you're, you're, 
when you're repping it, what are you repping it for? Number one. Number two is is the ability to communicate. So we actually do this, which I love. It's this coned out drill. It's almost like Okie's a football. And, you know, the goalie throws an outlet to a, a an offensive player, a defensive player, sometimes a pole. And then we have an attackman step up. And then a second guy steps up and, and the, the conversation that has to be had in a 10-yard gap to, to make sure that you bookend the ball care and stay on that. Uh, so that's number one. Number two, I think for us would be, to your point, the ability to reassess. So if they do split the double, how do you reassess? And as a goalie, that was that was damn near impossible. So we talked to our guys about like one single pass to me ends the double. So if, if we can achieve one pass, that that's going to break the double. So what are we doing off the ball? Where are we starting? Are we using the net as a, as a diversion? Are we, are we isolating the goalie? If the goalie's on the attack side of the field, you know, what is our next outlet option? Because besides Jordan Wolf, I don't know how many guys are splitting the double in two minute offense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that's, that's more two minute and then six on six, you know, I believe in it. We do a drill called drag versus dice where you just have to double it. And the offensive player is allowed to kind of run as far away as he can. And it, you have to kind of commit and stay on it. It's just amazing how physical it is. So, you know, once a week, maybe, yeah. um, yeah. Yeah. you know, even the D guys, like they run into each other, you know, and it's, it's just a really competitive drill, but it, it, it does prove beneficial. And, you know, I, I look at, you know, even a team like, um, Bellarmine, you know, Bellarmine two years ago, they just slid everything. And it's like, shoot, Coach Caputo said this to me. It really made me think, like, you just have to go slow against fast Dodgers. And you just kind of have to wait. Because if you run and a slide comes, you're running times two. And, you know, we've tried to improve that as well. So understanding the speed of the Dodge, when we can double the Dodge, to Virginia's point, how good they are. And I think a lot about Michael Earhart, similar to the kid Connors, how he smashes to the back of the head on turns. and, And then what dictates a slide? You know, is it a hook check with a short stick? Is it a V hold? Yeah, that's a, to us is a free ticket to go uh, because you, you're you're tied up and it's a one way go versus trying to figure out which side he's going to be. So we have taught a lot of those double, um, I guess, visuals to be able to kind of accuse to be able to go on. Yeah, love it. Really cool. Um, from a player development perspective, are you? Um, I had a really great conversation with, with Andy Shea and he talked a ton about, you know, constraints uh, that he uses in to develop players, basically rules in drills. You just mentioned one um, in your um, double team drill where, you know, the, the constraint is you have to double things. And I don't know exactly what that is, but can you talk about the way you try to develop players through the use of constraints and rules that are more effective and important than, your explanation, because basically in order to achieve the task you're setting for them, they, they must find a way, find a solution. Mm-hmm. And that, that ends up being these skills that you're trying to teach. Yeah. I'll give you one drill uh, specific. And I, I, I listen to coach Shane. I'm so impressed with sometimes how thoughtful they are and how they do things. We have a drill called the Grosky drill, which it, it can format to anything, but really at its heart, it's a two on two, four on four, two man game drill on ball and the off ball. And every one of our drills that we do now is a two ball drill, which I think benefits our guys a lot in terms of beating the whistle, next play reaction. Um, Essentially what we require in that drill, the constraints, the most common constraints, and you can change it are the Dodger can't start with the ball. So again, forcing the defense to have to reapproach, whether that be uh, an exchange through X, uh, taking the top side and, and a backside Venmo to be able to, to attack off of a secondary approach. But the first dodge can't be a real dodge. So the first dodge, has to be what we call B-52 mindset, coming out, 
making you on your heels. Okay, now the second dodge is going to be the one where we have the defense spun, like we talked about in that analogy. Um, the second of it is everything is man to man. So even when it becomes a four on four or five on four, we have to have ball pressure. So it's a four on four drill. It has to start with 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 one B fifty two to a secondary dodge, and then after that, ball two comes in, whether that be from X or up top, based on how we're doing the drill that day. That that is man. So we don't ever play a drill that's unsettled that we play like a zone. Like there's really no scenario that we play a box in, in, in a game unless it's man down. So if a ball enters from X, somebody has to scram to X and play the ball just like you would in a recovery or a secondary approach. And now you have to navigate a stick or approach. So it's it's five on four, but the, the X attackman has to play with with friction on his hands. And how do we challenge our offensive players to find diversion off the ball? And we call it off ball access. Like, you know, we're playing Hopkins this weekend. They're they're freaking all six foot five. Now you might think you're open, but six foot five with a pole, you know, you got to find a little bit more off ball access. So those are some of the constraints that we have in a basic drill to, you know, turn the defense on its head. And number two, to, to add friction on the ball, even if it's at a disadvantage for the defense. Yeah. The, uh, the concept of playing the ball, like your man to man, when you're man down in your drills, particularly behind the net. So important. I, I can't tell you how often I watch high school films where everyone's just kind of standing around in a little box and it's just uh, yeah. no one's really getting anything out of that. E- even though packing it in, in a box might be a good strategy for man down. If you were like uh, playing a five on four situation, it's not a great way to learn how to play defense and rotate. No, no. We find that um, the eyes are the most dangerous thing of a ball carrier and, and ball pressure, good ball pressure, good on ball defense takes care of bad off ball defense. So we want to always have that as our staple. So how do you, we talked earlier about creativity and you're talking about ball pressure. Um, are, are you a, a team that allows guys to check? Do you have checks that you'll allow that you don't allow? Um, I think we've talked about this in the past that you haven't been much, you weren't a V-hold guy. I don't know if that's changed or not. Um, that's a classic way to create ball pressure. I think that's the main reason for it, whatever, but how do you teach ball pressure and what do you allow within the ball pressure that you're um, that you're introducing? Yeah, again, it's 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 versus uh, uh, an offense that the life of the dodge doesn't exist versus one that does. So, you know, if, if the ball is transitioning around, we you know, we have AWP LWC arrive with a poke, leave with a check. So we want to get a touch when we get there. We want to get a touch when we leave. And and that's if there's no life of the dodge. You know, we don't want to allow the ball to go around the perimeter and force our defense to have to turn without any friction. Um, during the life of the dodge, that's when we're a little bit more aggressive. That's when specifically our short sticks, um, we have changed the B whole thing. We certainly, uh, our guys do do it, um, essentially when they're at a disadvantage. And to me, that's like, that is your makeup speed at disadvantage on the ball is, is the V hold for, especially for our poles, for our short sticks, uh, our short sticks are probably the strength of our team. So we allow them to, to express themselves, which often frustrates me for sure, but, um, they're aggressive. Um, and again, I think it's hard to have ball pressure with short six unless you are aggressive. Um, so we're probably going to have to support them at times anyways. I'd rather them, I'd rather them disrupt. You know, if you, if you were to define us as a team defensively at the end of the year, I would want it to be disruption. And I think with short six, that means you have to give them a little bit longer of a leash. Um, so you'll let those guys wrap a little bit. Right. You know, that the hook jacks, as long as the feeder move, I think Zach Goodrich, Danny Logan. I mean, those are two great examples of like the best short six in the world. I'll always have their arms and length around you. So how do we increase that with our short yeah, six? Totally. 
Some people call that, you mean like a reverse V-hold? Some people will call it that too, right? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Cor yeah, correct. The right yeah, on left. More of the right on left um, hold. Yep. Basically. Correct. I've been thinking yeah. a lot about this. I mean, holding is a 30-second penalty. And a lot of times when you're like a V-hold team, you know, everyone's just like, they're holding, they're holding, they're holding, and they're just like trying to like get flags all day. That hook mm -hmm. check you're referencing is a hold. It's just an incredibly effective hold that doesn't get called a hold. And, and, and that's really part of what the part of the advantage of your stick, whether it's long or short, is your ability to hold. I mean, think about mm -hmm. it. That, that you know, you talk about the well, we use our V-hold mostly when we're kind of in a position where we're beat. Well, that's because you're holding them and you can actually slow them down with some ball pressure. Um, mm -hmm. just just to like literally get the mindset of we should try to hold whenever we possibly can. If you can get a stick on somebody, if they're making a move on you, I was doing a webinar once with uh, Matt Landis and, and he was guarding Jordan Wolf and Jordan Wolf, you know, was um, sort of on the goal line and he split to his left going underneath and Landis like put his stick on Wolf's ribs and just held mm -hmm. him just long enough that he could move his feet and kind of get there. Um, mm -hmm. And, um, I was just curious, you know, how much you think about it. it. Sounds like you do with both your shorts and your poles. You use your stick for ball pressure and disruption. And how much do you think about it in terms of holding? Yeah, I, I mean, I, at our core, our identity needs to be feet and fist because I do think if you throw any of those holes or V hooks, you know, v, v holds, you make yourself skinny, especially at full speed. So that 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 invites different roles and different space for the offensive player. It gives them leverage. Um, you know, slaps or hooks without contact. Most guys run through. I mean, most guys are going to run through those initial checks. If you can initiate with your hands, that's when you disrupt the the the, the body of the ball. Now you can dislodge the ball. And to to me, like uh, we have no success when we just go right for the hook checks. And we have two guys that do it all the time, and it drives me nuts because they have success when they do it, but it's mm -hmm. with a pop first. So feet and fist are at our core. Mm -hmm. Then to your point that those hook checks and they also hook checks, feet checks, they they tell your teammates behind you how to support you. Yeah. Versus you know, if you're running hip to hip, especially with short sticks, and, and you can kind of float on a short stick for a long period of time and not be beat or not lose the ball. So when you are more aggressive, you're telling your teammates, hey, I'm going all in. You know where to go. And and that for us is a cue, a visual yeah. cue that can help our support defense as well. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it goes hand in hand. I mean, the bottom line is, is if you don't move your feet, you're not going to play good defense anyways. And your guys that can move their feet really well um are better off if they can integrate holds into their whether it's you know and if you're beat because you're catching up to somebody you're going to be skinny but you have no choice mm -hmm. either that or don't put your stick on the guy so yeah, <laughs> have yeah. To. and if you're in position then you can use a v-hold and be uh shuffling and be not mm -hmm. skinny and you know um but you know it's really interesting too i thought to Lars about this a lot the the ability to move laterally and bump guys though is really that's 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 the combination of athleticism of moving your feet and of being able to time up your um your cross check really um shorties it's an absolute must um how much do you guys teach sort of moving laterally versus backing off i think part of it is is having those unicorns that can do that that can move gotcha. laterally and and bump and um you know we had a guy in Colin Hitton last year who could do that i think we do have somebody this year that that has the potential um that that's first. You have to have the athletic pedigree. Uh, you have to know yourself, right? Like, you know, the, the difference between shadow shadowing the ball and understanding the points of contact and, you know, bocce is what we call the point of contact back of crease extended. And if you're athletic enough, you can go meet the ball at certain points, but still get contact there. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, it's 
I've learned that it's not one size fits all. Um, at, at the end of the day, though, you, you, again, I just go back to like, if you can't disrupt the ball with your fist, you, we're, we're going to be really hard, hard pressed to support you. And we yeah. know we're going to have to support, you know, we're going to have to support the Saturday night against Hopkins. We get that. But yeah. it's going to be hard to do if you don't get your hands on them at some point. So true. And, you know, the, the ball pressure of bumping guys is real. I mean, like, if, mm-hmm. if you can, like, move and jack guys, it rattles them. Without doubt. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, good stuff, man. Well, good luck against Hopkins. I'm so fired up that you took some time uh, as your season's about to get underway to tell us about the program. Uh, always love talking lacrosse with you, John, and uh, appreciate it. Good luck. No, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Jamie.